VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Meet Stacy. Stacy's on the hunt for a new pair of trendy glasses. Call me picky, but I just can't find the one. Luckily for Stacy, Walmart Vision has virtual try-on. Now she can try on hundreds of frames virtually, then upload her prescription and get new glasses delivered right to her door. Really? <laughs> yeah, really. Well, the hunt just took a turn for the better. Buy your next pair of glasses with virtual try-on from Walmart. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart. Restrictions apply. See walmart.com for details. It's Monday, May 6th, 2019, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook. You can also get an ad-free version of this show by supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. This is our monthly up-to-date episode, and I have a really exciting scientific discovery, whatever you want to call it, to share with you. Discovery? That's rare these days. Is it a black hole? Yeah, I mean, it's... (laughs) Well, not this time. I guess it's not that exciting. Although, you know, in the grand scheme of the universe, I suppose a black hole is more exciting than, you know, bioprinting a liver. But I think bioprinting a liver is still pretty exciting. Bioprinting a liver? Like, I've heard of bioprinting of organs, but nothing as complicated as what the liver does. Right. And, you know, there's been a lot of issues about sort of, you know, figuring out a way to to get organs that we can put into people's bodies that don't require a human donor. Um, You know, as you probably know, there are hundreds of thousands of people who are on various transplant lists. Many people die before they get the transplant. And uh, this is actually a personal story for me. You know, one of my friends has been waiting for a new liver for over a year now, and she battles every single day. And she's at the top of the list currently, uh, but they're still struggling to find the right match. Uh, Eventually, this could be a problem of the past. Uh, So there was some research that came out of Rice University, Jordan Miller's lab, um, which I like to think maybe it's the same Jordan Miller, who is one of our Patreon um, supporters, but I actually think that's probably not true. But shout out to Jordan Miller's out there. Um, This work is actually the cover of Science Magazine uh, at the moment. And what they did is they created an artificial vascular network. So that's been one of the big hurdles of 3D printing organs is that, you know, you have to actually create this very intricate vasculature that goes around the organ that allows the organ to essentially exchange blood and nutrients, et cetera, with the rest of the body. And it's a critical feature and something that people have really thought that was going to be a long time coming. So in this particular uh, lab, what they did is they, they came up with a kind of ingenious solution uh, of how to solve this problem. So, you know, here you have these like really intricate kind of laced networks uh, and you have to have material that is porous enough that, you know, it lets the right nutrients through, um, but, you know, keeps all the important stuff inside. And in this case, what they did is they created a a solution that is liquid until it's exposed to blue light and uh, exposing it to blue light solidifies it. So, you you know, how like blue light, like what is blue light? Just like the color blue? Yes. Blue light that we would see in the visible spectrum as blue. 
So, I mean, essentially, you know, the way 3D printing works is that you print, you know, one layer at a time and, you know, you have to get the layers to be super thin if you want to make something super complicated. Uh, and, and, and that's been hard. So what this team did is they used food coloring uh, that absorbs blue light and then it confines the solidification to a very thin layer of this particular substance. Uh, so they can make a soft water-based, you know, biocompatible gel with like an intricate architecture. Uh, and it just takes a few minutes. And and this kind of idea of actually using blue or using food coloring that absorbs blue light uh, was the inside of a grad student named uh, Bagrat Gregorian, uh, along with his his PI, Jordan Miller. So, uh, you know, kudos to the grad student came up with this awesome solution. And this is super cool because, of course, if you can create this vasculature around an organ, you know, then you can actually use the person's own cells to create the organ. So this solves two problems. One, scarcity, uh, because you can just print on demand. And two, the, the fact that a lot of organs get rejected because they come from someone else's cells. Um, so here's a solution in which you could use this, per, the same person's cells uh, to create the organ that they need. And, you know, presumably if this works uh, in the future, this could really just, just completely change the way that organ transplants are done. So let me see if I got this. So essentially what they're doing is they're, they're printing all of the networks of arteries and, and veins throughout, throughout the liver and then putting that in like some sort of scaffold and then implanting cells that are going to regrow into liver tissue around it. And so you're essentially growing a liver around this living architecture in the middle. Is that right? Yes, that's as far as I understand it. And, you know, this this is cool because, you know, it can it can essentially solve the problems of organs that traditionally have been thought to be, you know, really very difficult to print like lungs or livers, which have, you know, a very tight relationship between, you know, the different substances in the body and, you know, what it does, like, you know, you need your lungs to breathe and, and exchange air and, you know, your, your liver is going to be detoxifying. So, you know, it, it's interesting in the article, they talk about how the liver has like 500 different uses in the body and that, that it's only second to the brain in terms of how kind of important and, and, and how we you know, use it. Uh, so I thought that was pretty cool. Although they're not talking about transplanting brains yet. <laughs> well, thankfully. <laughs> Did they give any indication like when they're using these hydrogels, like how replicable this is? Because the, as you alluded to at the beginning, the scale of this problem is enormous. So it's not like they can print you know, one liver in a month and, and say that this is a functional technology that needs to work. It needs to be on a on order of uh, days for this to well, really they, be meaningful. I mean, they yeah, they claim it just takes a few minutes. Uh, what? So, yeah, I know. That's what's pretty exciting about it. And I, you know, I've never this is had a, a proof 3D of concept. Print. So, I've never had a 3D print take minutes before. So, first of all, it's I magical I mean, just it, from that perspective. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's possible that what they're talking about is like, I mean, in my head, I'm thinking like, how is that even possible? But, uh, but maybe it's just like the the whole process probably takes a lot longer. But in terms of just creating these layers that it just takes a few minutes. Um, but uh, anyway, it's exciting. I, I love this story too, because we did an episode of Science in Progress, our, our video series on, on Tested, that essentially poked at this issue, like that a number of labs were trying to decellularize uh, tissue uh, to 
I to essentially have that vasculature just sort of intact and then replant tissue in it to grow around it. So that way they they get around this problem of of um, having to create the vasculature just because it already exists. Uh, but that's so complicated and it's so sensitive that it's um, it's really challenging to do. So to be able to get to that kind of precision in 3D printing is is pretty amazing. Uh, and to do it with visible light is a, a kind of what I never expected because there's so many companies out there that do like UV cured 3D printing. So it, it pulls from a resin that hardens when you hit it with UV light. But typically visible light has never been energetic enough to to do much in the in the printing landscape, but this is sort of ingenious how they've used it as a color absorption uh, technology here. OMGS.com does large-scale peer-reviewed scientific research about what's sexually pleasurable for women and turns the findings into beautiful evidence-based videos and animations. Sexual technique is one of those topics where even curious people tend to think they already know all they're ever going to know, which is unfortunate. By blunting our curiosity, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. We explore less, and we don't discover new pleasure. OMGYes.com is designed to re-inspire curiosity and exploration. When Indiana University School of Medicine researchers gave OMGYes to 1,000 people ages 18 to 83, 96% realized that there's actually more room for their sexual pleasure to grow, and 95% experienced pleasure in a way that felt new to them physically. The study also shows positive ripple effects into non-sexual parts of our lives like optimism and confidence. That's not surprising. Most of us have experienced lifted mood and outlook after lots of pleasure and connection with a partner. Stay curious and get $10 off by going to omgyes.com minds. That's omgyes.com minds. If there's something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals, BetterHelp Online Counseling can help. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialized in issues such as depression, anxiety, relationships, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBT matters, grief, self-esteem, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. And get help at your own time and at your own pace. Anything you share is confidential, and it's so convenient you can schedule secure video or phone sessions as well as chat and text with your therapist. If for some reason you're not happy with your counselor, though, you can request a new one at any time for no additional charge. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. Inquiring Minds listeners even get 10% off your first month with the discount code MINDS. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com minds. Then simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com minds. I have a different story for you this week. Do you like cilantro? Um, I do. I, I It doesn't taste like soap to me, but I can't say that like, you know, I'm going to put it on everything I eat. Yeah, as usual, you're a couple steps ahead. I'm asking about cilantro because there is a specific <laughs> genetic variant uh, that a number of people have. I think it's something like 10 to 12% of the population where they think cilantro tastes like soap. I think those people are crazy because cilantro is the best. But you know, that might have to do with the Indian upbringing that I've had where cilantro is mandatory. Um, but what what is fascinating is that 
when that for, for sort of first came out, this idea that there's genetic variants that have an effect on our sort of perception of taste and smell, I think people understood that, but it was always the edge case. It was usually like cilantro or something like really earthy, like sometimes you, you've heard of beets in a similar way. Uh, well, a new study came out in PNAS this week uh, that looked at not just one receptor and one set of foods that could bind to that receptor and have genetic variants, but 400 olfactory receptors and a bevy of things that we have different tastes for. So let me ask you this. Do you think you and I like have the same smellscape of the world? Do we? Do you think, generally speaking, like within reason, that we think certain things taste the same between the two of us? So I, you know, being a student of uh, of of sensation, uh, I have to say that I think that our experiences influence how we taste. So, for example. If in my experience, which is the case, uh, vanilla scent has always been paired with sweet foods, then when I add the scent of vanilla to any food, it actually tastes sweeter to me. But there are other cultures in which vanilla is considered more of a savory addition. Uh, so I will say it depends on, I mean, I think you and I probably have pretty similar diets growing up, <laughs> but if you were exposed to food that is, you know, particularly outside of, you know, what, what no most North American families would be eating, then I would say we probably have very different profiles. So I would suspect the same, that we have a very different profile. And it opens up the secondary question, like, how do you test for that? Because like you're saying, it's like part experience, right? It's part experience. So even if you're trying to identify underlying genetic conditions, how do you do this? Well, this researcher, Casey Trimmer, uh, she decided the one way to do this would be, let's get a room full of people. So they got 300 people to sit in front of computer screens, all in the same room, and they gave them each basically like 150 jars of different odors that had been sort of like pre-screened. They're, they either had a chemical in them or, or like a very specific scent associated to it that was well-established. And they had them rate intensity. And that intensity would take into account some of these personal experiences people would have. So uh, you might have a more intense experience with vanillin than I would based on that experience you just uh, dictated. But then they asked them for something else before they left, a blood sample so that they could do genetic screening across all of them and then compared the variance between all these 300 people to find the differences. So there was some things that, that emerged that we would expect. Like there's a, a chemical androstenone, which uh, a lot of people have a reaction to that it, that it smells like sweat, like that kind of muskiness to it, um, but others don't be, because of a genetic variant. So they're able to see that. But what they're able to do because of such a, a distinct population that they uh, came together with is they started to really get a whole sense of like a number of different vari genetic variants that are giving them different experiences. And beyond that, start to identify which olfactory receptors were actually driving this. And the indication is from this paper, and there's obviously a lot more work to do, is that we have an idea both why some people like beets and think that whiskey is smokier than it is, 
But we also have a sense of which olfactory receptors aren't doing anything when it comes to certain scents and which ones are really activated. So we can actually focus and distill down from these 400 receptors that are in our nose down to probably around the 150 or so that are really driving our sensory perception of uh, why things smell a certain way. That's just crazy to me that they're able to create wow. such like a, uh, a distinct profile of what's happening in our nose um, by doing this like larger population simulation with so many different scents and flavors. It's kind of not what I expected, but it also like points to this idea. Of, I've heard that number before that we have 400 olfactory receptors, but it also points this idea that like not all of them are working for us. And so our scent is actually driven by probably a smaller set of those working in tandem. Uh, and it just makes it even more remarkable, the complicated smells and tastes that we generate from the limited number of olfactory receptors that are actually in motion. Yeah, I wonder if this is going to, you know, can be used by the food and beverage industry. Like I could imagine wineries trying to figure out like what is going to be the best selling combination on the basis of the proportion of these genes in the population or like chip manufacturers. Like in Canada, we have dill pickle and ketchup flavored chips. and I don't see those in the US. And it's just like, is it because Canadians just have a different genetic profile that, you know, on average, makes them smell and taste these these flavors differently? What's know. that one ruffles flavor that I always see in Canada? It's like all, um, all dressed, all all dressed. Yeah, it's basically just throw everything in there. <laughs> I love that. I actually really like that flavor. It just sort of points that I'm probably secretly Canadian on the inside. That is. Um, well, well, you love hockey, so obviously it's not secret. I'm not quite polite enough to pass the Canadian citizenship test, but I'm getting close. That's true. That's true. All right. Well, let me ask you this. What is the most venomous creature in the world? Uh, I think you're begging me to say a snake, and so I'm not going to. I'm going to say a jellyfish. <laughs> Oh, you're right. It's the Australian box jellyfish. In fact, one particular species, which uh, whose name I will not pronounce. Uh, this is a enormous jellyfish. Actually, they can their tentacles can grow as long as ten feet. Uh, <laughs> ten this feet. That's not, that's beyond yeah. enormous. That that's just terrifying. Right. Yeah. And they can swim. So most jellyfish just like just like float. Uh, these guys can actually propel themselves. Uh, and their their sting is or their venom is so strong that it can actually kill you in five two to five minutes. Like it can give you a heart attack. <laughs> give you a heart um, attack? Okay. That's the venom. Yeah, cardiac arrest. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Send you into cardi cardiac arrest. Uh, so there's only been, surprisingly, 64 deaths uh, from stings recorded since like the 1880s from this particular jellyfish. Um, but a lot of people have gotten stung and, and it causes necrosis of the skin and is incredibly painful. So if you're a researcher that studies pain, uh, understanding how this venom works is potentially a, a really good path, you know, research area for you. So uh, this is like one of my favorite stories of all time, Kishore, because it, it contains so many things that like I think you will find delightful. So, you know, the first thing is like you and I both like to talk about animals that can kill us. OK, so we've got that out of the way. OK. The second thing that we like to talk about is your favorite gene editing tool. Oh, yeah. CRISPR. Let's talk about CRISPR. Okay, <laughs> right. Cool. So these scientists, Greg Neely and Raymond Lau at the University of Sydney, they published this, by the way, in Nature Communications. They had like this whole bunch of millions of human cells and they used CRISPR to knock out a different single gene in each cell. And then they administered the venom 
to all of the cells and they watched which cells survived and which died. Uh, and as as they did that, they actually identified the pathways that the venom worked on. And and here's what they found. Guess what it, what the venom needs? What kind of popular human hormone or neurotransmitter do you think, or, or substance, I should say, do you think the venom needs in order to survive? Um, testosterone? <laughs> no, although that would be a very good guess. <laughs> it would be really funny. Cholesterol? Cholesterol. Yeah, so cholesterol. It turns out that that's, uh, the, that's the pathway that it works. And guess what? We have drugs that are safe in humans that block cholesterol, right? That decrease or reduce the amount yeah, of Yeah, the statin family of drugs that reduce. So that's is it right. the HDL or LDL? Uh, cholesterol lipid so it's actually um it's actually a, a particular uh i have to think it's like a a cyclodextrin is the drug not uh so it's more like based on fiber so i think in this case uh i don't remember actually if it's hdl or ldl um but what they found is that that, that drugs that act on uh these cyclo or that use cyclodextrins these, these drugs that are cyclodextrins which essentially are sort of like a soluble fiber uh, they were effective at blocking the venom. So what these guys did is they created an antidote, uh, which uh, at, at the moment, they, right now they injected it. I think they used a rodent model and they injected it and it stopped the venom. They, they don't know yet if it can stop the cardiac arrest part, but it could stop. It was very effective at stopping the necrosis of the skin, any scarring, and also the pain, which is what they were really interested in. So it, it can block the, the the pain that happens when you get stung. Um, and so now they're thinking that, you know, you could uh, create like a kind of lotion or a cream and, you know, put it on superficially uh, when you get stung. And within 15 minutes, it could sort of, you know, block the venom. But the problem is, is that they're, they're a little bit concerned that if you did use the cream, that you'd actually like rub more venom in, <laughs> you know, because you're like actually rubbing around on the sand. Anyway. But I, I thought this was really a, a great story uh, and one that sort of, you know, hit all of your sweet spots. Oh, I, I love it. So I can not only uh, cut down on all that uh, cholesterol that I'm getting from fast food, I can protect myself from jellyfish. So that, that's right. So that's right. The justification, more importantly. <laughs> yeah. The justification for getting those burgers every week to my wife is that like, really, I'm just helping science develop anti-venoms. Yeah. So anyway, I just thought this was a great story that kind of pulls together all these different techniques and shows that like, you know, science is far reaching. Also, I'm never going in the ocean again if there are jellyfish with 10 foot tentacles out there. That is Yeah, terrifying. at least not northern between northern Australia and the Philippines. Avoid that area. You know, uh, and of course, it's in Australia, the deadliest of all continents. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Charles Blyle, Clark Lindgren, Michael Galgool, Stefan Meyer Ewald, Kyle Raihala, Joel, Jonathan Woosley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Millar, regardless of whether or not you discovered bioprinting uh, organs, Herring Chang, and Sean Johnson. You can visit our website at inquiring.show and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds and get an ad-free version of the show. Find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to contact at inquiring.show. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. 
struggles you're facing from depression and anxiety to trauma and grief, BetterHelp can connect you with a professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient, you can schedule secure video or phone sessions as well as chat and text with your therapist. And anything you share is completely confidential. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. Inquiring Minds listeners even get 10% off your first month with the discount code MINDS. So why not get started? Simply go to betterhelp.com minds and fill out a questionnaire to get matched with a counselor you'll love today. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application.